0: Singer, songwriter, author, and activist Steve Bell grew up amidst his mother's mental health struggles. His personal story of difficulty, suffering, and loss bring a unique wisdom to intimacy and relational connection.
1: He's emerged as an artistic advocate of truth and beauty. He's a mentor for many and a compassionate, inspirational leader, both in his music and in his activist work as an ally for Indigenous justice issues.
0: So, Roy, today we're interviewing Steve, who just happens to be a really good friend of yours. How did you get to know him?
1: Well, I I actually met him at the Junos. Ooh. uh, Did you win
0: something? Did he win something? No,
1: I I believe he won something, and some act that I produced was up for it, and Hmm. we met backstage. He's released about 20 albums since then. He's won two Junos, and he also a few years ago won a Diamond Jubilee Award Mm. for his contributions, not just musically and artistically, but for his justice work. Yeah. So we
0: were at his concert, actually. And then at the end of the concert, I said to you, oh, I'd love to interview Steve. And you said, let me see if I can make this happen. Let me see if
1: I can make this happen.
0: And you did.
2: When I think about capacity to love, however that's been developed, and my capacity for joy... The requirement for joy for me doesn't mean no suffering. In fact, it's almost more through it, right? Um, Those things just kind of deepen in a way that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that trauma and coming out the way it did.
0: I'm Rachel Cram.
1: And I'm Roy Salmon. And welcome to Family 360.
0: Conversations exploring life together. Steve, you've had a very busy weekend of lectures and concerts, so thank you so much for being with us.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. That's very kind of you,
0: <laughs> Steve. At your concerts, you occasionally mention challenges you faced growing up in the realities of your mom's mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, as an educator, I know those early years are just so essential to your life, mm-hmm. and so I'm assuming that must have been a little bit of a, a challenging upbringing for you. Yet here you are, so demonstrably loving and pursuing such joy, you really look like you're functioning very well.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank
3: you. I feel okay. <laughs> that
0: was so I just thought, can you tell me a little more about that? Because sometimes we're tempted to think people who've had some success in a particular area of life, people that seem to have it together, have got there because they've had minimal hardship. Life's been pretty smooth, and, and often that's not the case at all. So can you tell me a little bit more about your upbringing?
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, my father's a minister. Uh, my mother was your sort of very typical Baptist minister's wife, played the piano. We had a charming life. We were good people. We had good friends. We were you had living us, in Winnipeg? No, it was in Drumheller, Alberta. And we had uh, a good and safe upbringing and loved by our parents and loved by our friends and neighbors, all that. And then one day and I was about eight years old, my mother was coming out of the house. Us kids were sitting in the front yard having a front yard picnic with my dad and my mom and she went in to get some lemonade and she came back out and I remember she walking out with this tray of of drinks and she just looked ashen-faced and then she just called out my dad's name and collapsed. Ambulances came and I kind of didn't see her for six months after that. she had had a complete emotional breakdown that obviously was building for some time. It was coupled with profound anxiety disorder, and depression. And it was brutal. Mm. And it just changed our life. It was just it was a train that came out of nowhere and just decimated our family. Right. And you just you make all these associations. So for me, it was traumatic, because why would this have happened to us unless something was wrong with us? Mm.
0: So Steve, what fed that perspective? Do you think Because that's such a heavy load for a child.
2: Yeah. Again, being sort of Christians at that time, sort of the assumption is if you're good and you kind of do everything right, everything should go well for you. At least as a child, that's how I perceived it. If you're a good boy, Santa will bring you, you know, gifts. And if you're a bad boy, Santa will give you coal. My capacity for understanding what was going on was a little boy looking at it from these sort of other narratives and pulling those in saying, therefore, if our lovely, beautiful safe home was decimated somebody's to blame so that kind of threw me into that whole thing
0: now this is happening in the 1970s yeah with even less information and support for mental illness right so what happened to your mom
2: well this is back in the day of of um heavy drug therapy and shock treatment and they just pounded her you know and she came back about six months later and she was almost physically unrecognizable Um, and would sit in a corner for months. I mean, she would smile and tell us we were loved and and all that kind of stuff. But my mom went away, and I kind of never got her back. Not the mom I used to know. Um, I got back another woman who I have come to love very, very much. But it was a death, in a sense.
0: Hmm. I'm thinking back just a few moments ago to a comment you made about assumptions, Steve. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, how did your faith community respond to your family crisis?
2: Um, the church at the time had no real catcher's mitt for mental disorder or mental illness. Just, they just had no ability to how to handle it, um, especially in a pastor's wife, because we're supposed to be faith people, and faith means, in a sense, victory, not, you know, not suffering. A lot of judgment, a lot of condemnation, a lot of um, very painful things said, a lot of alienation. But the lovely thing that happened in all of that was the government built a federal prison, and they're looking for a chaplain, and they asked Dad if he would become the first chaplain of this federal prison. And dad is burnt out, and we were burnt out, and we were just absolutely broken, and he just he needed to do something else, and he said yes. More out of defeatism than anything. Hmm. But here's the gift. The inmates of the prison had no problem with my mom being unwell. They just didn't need her to be well. And their whole thing was, we're your people. Come hang out with us losers. Hmm. And it was Canada's most unwanted men that embraced the brokenness of our family that really was profoundly healing, and ironically the safest place for us to be with a bunch of other broken people who just didn't have any problem with brokenness <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> wow steve that i your story takes all these twists and turns and it just makes me think safety can come in in really unexpected places you know what I mean? or people. Yeah. There's beauty in the truth of that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trust it. Yeah. And, and that, I, I think what I felt really was, an, in a sense, salvific for us.
0: Like a sense of belonging. You got invited yeah. in. Yeah.
2: And so when I think about capacity for, to love, however that's been developed, and my capacity for joy doesn't mean no suffering. In fact, it's almost more through it right? Um, Those things just kind of deepen in a way that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that trauma and coming out the way it did.
0: Listening to you as a mother... I know for myself and I think most all moms feel this way you just want your child's life to be perfect and you want to be everything you can for mm-hmm. your child so that they can turn out like I think you've turned out see mm-hmm. um obviously what happened with your mom would never have been her choice right yet yet you still are where you're at how does how how would you describe that like
2: well, what's, I can, what's the wonder in, what, in that Well, well I, can take you, I can take you now to the other end of my story. My father, it's interesting, he um, was diagnosed a couple years ago with a deadly cancer with no hope of sort of surviving it. And the only hope was that, that they could sort of make him comfortable and he might have two years, that kind of a thing. And, um, and pain came. It was very, very painful. And I remember, <laughs> I remember um, going in to visit my dad and he's lying in his bed and he's asleep and he's shuddering in his sleep because of pain. So as he's breathing out, it's, a, it's a, like a shuddering breath out of pain. And I'm just looking at my father, I'm just weeping. And, um, and, and he wakes up and he sees me suffering because of his suffering, you know, and I'd heard blurred, I says, dad, this is so unfair, you're a good man. Like if anybody deserves a, a good, you know, noble exit, you do, right? And he goes, oh, Steve, he says, I'm not scandalized by suffering. Now, this is a man who's suffered his whole life in the sense that, you know, he said for better, for worse to my mom and nobody expects worse, but he got got a lifetime of anxiety disorder, depression and, you know, the stuff that my mom, like he's suffered loss in his life. But it was really interesting he would say this and I'm looking at him and he says, I'm not scandalized by suffering. And then he said, everything I've wanted most in life, I'm getting in spades around this bed. He says, people that have never touched me, touch me. People that have never said tender things to me say tender things to me. People that have never kissed me, kiss me. He says, I've wanted this kind of intimacy and tenderness my whole life. He says, I'm not despising this at all. And then he said, who wouldn't wish this on their best friend? <laughs> wow. You know? Now, now my dad, and nobody would say suffering in itself is a good that we should go after. Hmm. But there is some principle of the cosmos where something good comes when we don't despise what's going to come anyways and that we seek the gift in it. Hmm.
0: I love that perspective. I'm not sure that it comes naturally yeah. to us. I I think, we, I guess we build through practice, through an intentionality at looking at life like that. Right. Yet we need a sustaining outlook. So how has looking for the good and seeking the gift affected your outlook, Steve?
2: Well, I, I think for, for me, what, what I learned through that experience with my mom and now with my dad is that there's a principle of goodness, I think, behind everything that is. You can call it God. You can, you know, different faiths have different ways of sort of coming at that. But if that's true, if you can have a faith in that foundational goodness um, that's part of the DNA of everything that it is, then there's some part of you can kind of say there's no such thing as a bad day. Where's where's the gift? And so, of course, I would rather choose not to suffer than to suffer, and I would choose to spend my life fighting injustice so other people don't have to suffer. But suffering itself is not the problem. Um, And suffering often is actually the, the way that we find the deeper gifts that connect us to each other, that connect us to a deeper understanding of of who we are in relationship to each other in the cosmos and to the divine. Mm. There's a mystery in it, and we shouldn't try to be too eager to explain it away in rational terms, because it can't be done. Mm.
0: You're a parent to four children. So as you're raising them and, and you've you have an awareness of how depth comes through suffering and, and joy can come through suffering. Mm-hmm. And you've lived an unusually complicated life yourself growing up in your family mm-hmm. of origins. Mm-hmm. As you're raising them, how does that affect you as you see them stepping into <laughs> difficult situations?
2: Well like anybody, I I, I would kind of go through I'll jump through every hoop so they don't have to suffer. Like, I'm just like, even with what I know, I'm always trying to rescue them from what me and my profound wisdom sees as bad decision making or, or whatever, right? So the the nature to still rescue from suffering is still good and right. But I have to sometimes, you know, I see them struggling financially or or this, you know, I, I've try to have a sort of a discipline of keeping my responses to about 50% of what I really want to say and to let them figure it out. My dad, my dad and my mom did let us figure it out. They were not too quick to rescue us. And I certainly didn't have felt no anger to them about that, but they sort of trusted the process because it, worked, it was their experience that it's, it's through those struggles, not around them. If there's goodness at the center of all things, I believe that's true. Then I reinterpret all events and every day under the light of that foundation.
0: You have so many beautiful albums that I love. There's their symphony album that you, mm. I think, did with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. that's right. When I listen to that album as I'm driving, I frequently have to pull over because mm. it's just so moving. Mm. And you have one song on there called The Dark Night of the Soul, mm-hmm. and as you've been talking right now, that song. I mean, I'm hoping we can even play it in this podcast with mm-hmm. your permission. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that for a small fee. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll talk. <laughs> um, as, uh, that song talks about the starless night, and yeah. I hear through your story some experience with that. How would yeah. you relate that song to your your experience with dark nights and pursuing joy and
2: well, see, well, that's that song. Um, it comes from a poem written by Saint John of the Cross. He's um, oh, okay. yeah, so that's a that's 15th great. century oh. poem. Yes, you know. with
0: an incredible story about his horrible torture. Like yeah,
2: yeah, not only yeah. Can can you tell? It's us? it's really interesting. And he came from a place where he was not doing monastery reforms, and some of the brothers in his own um, tradition didn't like his reforms, and it, like literally imprisoned him in a, in like a, a cell about twice the size of this table in utter darkness for over a year, tortured, beaten, um, complete deprivation, no light, no ability to read. Um, And it was in that darkness that he wrote this poem, Dark Night of the Soul, which is considered the, the pinnacle of Spanish poetry. But with him, he understood it through the darkness to the other side. Somehow he trusted that, he trusted goodness. And it was in that that he realized that somehow to kind of pursue through it onto the other side, being sort of driven by the light in his own heart and using the internal light of love uh, to guide him in place of external light. And he did come out the other side. He came out joyful, and he came out um, wise. Um, And he came out full of poetry Mm. (laughs) and beauty. If any man could have um, had the uh, excuse to sort of indulge in ugliness after his experiences, he had the right because he was treated ugly. Um, and he could have responded in kind and nobody could have blamed him, but he didn't. He saw it as gift. Again, he understood this this profound goodness at the center of all things. Therefore, uh, this experience itself had something to offer. And he came out of that with some of the finest poetry in the most beautiful language that comes out of the Spanish tradition. You go back and you look at some of the great songs um, in history, some of the great poetry, some of the great literature, and you start looking at the lives of the people that wrote that stuff. Oh, my goodness, it's all through suffering.
0: We've seen that play out with Nelson Mandela. Oh, yes. In South Africa, just how those years of imprisonment,
2: what, 28 years. Like, that's just a miracle, right? But he's not the first. Like, that's not actually an anomaly, right? That's actually, um, those people, every century has. Thousands of them. Uh, Teresa um, of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, who in her diary says that she didn't feel beautiful spiritual warmth her whole life. In fact, she felt the exact opposite. She sort of felt um, she was kind of isolated and alone, but still became this beautiful otherer. And she didn't use the suffering to alienate and isolate herself into a self-absorbed cocoon. She did the exact opposite. She turned the soul outwards to shine a light rather than to be a black hole that sucked it all in
0: huh i I love that whole idea of othering in the context you're using. I feel like I'm just hearing that word a lot now, but typically it's in the context of determining others as different and inferior. You're claiming othering as being oriented to the needs of others in a way that actually defines us who we are,
2: yeah, like what's really interesting when i'm when I'm lying on my deathbed if i if I get to have you know a chance to really think about my life um and I started thinking about the things that I love the most about Steve Bell, right? Um, every single thing that I adore about me is a gift from someone else.
0: Can you give us some examples?
2: I'm a son. I couldn't be a son without a mom and dad, right? That's a gift. I, it's impossible. I'm, I'm constituted son by my parents. I'm constituted friend by my friends. I'm constituted spouse by my wife. I'm constituted father by my kids. I'm constituted grandfather by my grandkids. Everything that I actually love about me, about my life, that I appreciate, none of it resides in me. It's all a gift from someone else. And so this whole idea really comes down to then the good life is the life of mutual constituting. It's not my job to create Steve Bell. It's my job to other you, to friend you, to spouse you, to you know, mother you, to son you, whatever it is that makes you who you are but requires me <laughs> for that to be true. And when you think about it, most things you love i bet about yourself are a gift of someone else
0: yeah well i'm thinking that the prayer of saint francis a grant that i may never seek so much to be consoled,
2: consoled as, as to console consoled. to be yeah. understood
0: as to understand yeah. to be loved as to love with all my soul i think that's what you're saying totally yeah that you, that you find yourself in giving yourself away
2: yeah like turn turn the light off yourself and change it the direction to outside and moving the, the other way and and then trust the process not everybody's going to do it back, that's fair enough, right? Because we're all broken and we're all hurting and not everybody's there yet. But the, the, the great saintly lives are the lives that learn how to turn that light away from themselves and, and project light and beauty and goodness into others. It's powerful. It's powerful. When we do this for each other, when we, when we sort of, um, I call it mutual othering. <laughs> when, when we operate in that sense, something else happens that I think the world needs profoundly, Really, in the end, I think spirituality, I mean, there's so many great definitions. But really what it is, is this capacity for the other. you know. And that could be human other, or it could be um, physical other, like nature. In, in fact, it needs to be, to be whole and full. But really, it is the, the othering, the capacity for the other. And the deeper one develops and practices that, and nurtures that innate ability, the more spiritual, quote-unquote, we become and sometimes that has a very specific thing like Christian or Buddhist or, or whatever. But that's almost besides the point. Because really, in the end, love transcends all of those kind of divisions in a way that's kind of undeniable when it's happening. No matter what your theology, no matter what your political stripes, whatever, it just you know when it's happening.
0: Can you give an example of a time when you've experienced that?
2: that that kind of mutual othering thing yeah yeah it was actually you mentioned my symphony work um i've done several concerts quite a few actually over the last several years with symphonies and my piano player mike jansen who's a brilliant piano player did all the scores it's majestic it's gorgeous he really knows how to work an orchestra and he's a quite a marvelous uh, soloist and i remember saying to him you know make sure you take at least one song in the concert you know, take a long extended solo and just really shine. So he picked one of the songs and he wrote in about about a three or four minute sort of solo at the end. But he's got lots of space to kinda of go. The first night we did this, the concert hall was on fire, the sound was great, everybody's into it, the orchestra was killing it. It was just one of those great, great nights. And it came to this song and he started to take on this solo. And I'm looking at him and I'm just realizing within about two or three bars that this is a special night. That he's he's got a unique freedom tonight. And what's coming down the pike is just fantastic. And he was getting this really complex, rhythmical soloing. It was just brilliant. It was, it was unbelievable. And so I dial into him, and I'm thinking with my guitar playing, I'm, I'm listening really carefully to everything he's doing and trying to just do things with my guitar that give him more energy, that kind of push him further, push him further, push him further without getting in the way. And he locked eyes with me as he's playing, and I locked eyes with him, and we're just... We're just staring at each other as his fingers are flying and I'm, I'm not looking at my guitar. He's not looking at his panel and I'm just dialing in as closely as I can. And this really complex rhythmical conversation started happening between the two of us. And then all of a sudden I realized that what I was doing to him, he was doing to me. He was fascinated with what I was doing. Um, and he was trying to play things that, that pushed me further. And I was trying to play things that pushed him further. And nobody was leading. We were mutually othering. The second that I realized what was going on, you, you can air this or not, because it's a little weird, but it's like everything stopped in time and space. Um, he froze, I froze, there's no sound, it was just, a, a, just an absolute freezing of time and space. And then I heard this voice that said, pay attention, this is who I am. That was years ago, I, I've almost still not recovered from it. It was this powerful moment of revelation where I mean to use very inclusive language where I, I think the, the, the divine one told me who he she is <laughs> through an experience that we had together, you know, kind of condescended to our experience of this mutual othering and saying, Yeah, you get it. This is who I am. And it's out of this who I am that you've been created in the first place. Right? And that's that's where I started really understanding everything that we've been talking about.
0: as i listened to you describe that i think what you're describing is what everybody so desperately wants is intimacy mm-hmm. and we can go through our whole of our life and never find that love is the absolute requirement for that to be a safe thing that can occur absolutely yeah. and you're describing it between two musicians right who yeah got an incredible gift yeah of experiencing that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so I just I listen to that and think, what is it that makes that kind of intimacy possible and accessible? Because those are really the moments, and they're often really just moments that make life rich and meaningful.
2: Absolutely. And here's the thing: Look, that's a pretty dramatic experience that I had, you know, in those big moments. When they happen, they happen. Yay. Right? Who doesn't want, who doesn't want great experience of connection and intimacy? Of course we all do. and I would wish that on, on absolutely everybody. But I'll tell you what it's done for me is I'm starting to realize I just haven't learned how to pay attention, right? And the more um, I attend to what's actually happening and pay attention and to you know who I'm talking to, you know, um, who I'm eating with, who I'm sitting beside in the cafeteria, um, at a bus stop, a bird that happens to fly by, and there's a little flash of light that just kind of draws your eye. These are all, the, it's all the same thing, <laughs> you know? And I think the great saints, the great mystics, are really the people that don't have the big experiences. They've learned to see them in um, almost every breath, hmm. right?
0: Seeing those moments takes practice.
2: Okay, let so me... So just
0: before we end, Steve, how, how do we recognize those moments? Explain that.
2: So let me give you another example with my parents. It was with my mom. She's aging. And, and uh, several years ago, she wound up back up in the hospital. Um, her whole life has been one of sort of in and out. And lots of her life has been wonderful. I'm not saying my mom has only suffered. She's had many years of just almost being free of it. And then bang, it hits her again. And in her later years, she had had a, a good decade of doing quite well. And I thought, I don't think my mom has to go through this again. And then all of a sudden, bam, it hit her. And she was back in the hospital, and it was long, and it was brutal. And I remember going one night to visit her in the hospital, and there's nobody else visiting. And it's kind of awkward because she, she's not really living. She has nothing to talk about. She has no capacity to really be interested in almost anything, engage with anything. And So I'm with my mom, and we're just kind of being quiet, and I'm feeling very awkward because I don't know what to say to her. And I kind of look away and try to think. And every time I'd look back at my mom, she'd just be waiting for me to look at her, and then she'd just smile. And we just kind of look at each other in the eyes and I still couldn't think of anything to say. And so I'd feel awkward and I'd look away and I look back at her and she'd all of a sudden she'd just brighten up. Every time I looked at her, she'd just kind of brighten up a little bit. Huh. Then finally feeling my awkwardness, she reached out her hand to me and I took my mom's hand. She's got this very translucent skin and these huge blue veins that run off the top of her hands. And as a kid, I used to play with the veins. I used to take her hand and push the veins around, you know, because it was just fun and All of a sudden, I take her hand, and I see those veins, and suddenly I'm three years old. I'm starting to push them around, and now because she's so much older and her skin is more translucent, it's even better, right? And I'm starting to giggle as I'm having this memory of this, and she's starting to giggle because she's remembering that this was a thing that we used to do, that I used to sort of sit there and play with her hands and push her veins around, and we'd laugh. So this is happening. There's this nice little joyful moment. And then we ended up with me just putting my hand over top of hers. And I clasped my hand with hers. And we just looked at each other. And I stopped looking away. Hmm. We didn't need to talk.
0: Hmm. And then what did you feel?
2: And then I felt, this is the words that came. And these are really from Simone Weil, a French philosopher who uses this particular word. The word that came to me was, there is gift in everything. Attend, attend, attend. She really talked about the gift of attention really transforms all experience taking these experiences that we'd rather not have and fight them as if they're the enemy, saying, no, no, there's gift here. If there's an essential goodness, there's gift. So attend, 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 and it'll pop up. It's there.
0: Our thanks to Steve Bell for his time and for his interview.
1: Yes, and for his wonderful music that has been woven throughout this episode.
0: So fabulous.
1: Thank you, Steve.
0: You know, Roy, I particularly enjoy it when our guests bring a piece of art or music or Mm -hmm. poetry to the conversation. It just expands it in a way that I find very intriguing.
1: Well, yeah, art has a unique ability to express the inexpressible. It gives voice to things in our lives that are often wordless.
0: And when you bring that to an interview where it is words...
1: People can resonate on a different level.
0: Yeah, and so we want to resonate on a different level by bringing Steve's song, Dark Night of the Soul, as an exit piece. Yeah. A rich metaphor for the journey to love and joy through darkness.
1: Lyrics written in the 16th century and the music by... Felt in joy
3: into the darkest night with a heartache kindled into love. I took a chance when at last. just the starless night and night i'd by- caresses, suspense, By a cooling wind, wounded by love's caresses, suspending all my senses, bless this.
0: Rachel Cram.
1: I'm Roy Salmond and thank you so much for listening to Family 360.